coming up on the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. The next step up in the continuum is assisted living, and the service level increases. So people are then starting to get three meals per day, uh, some care, um, housekeeping, laundry, transportation, activities, and so on. This is the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. And we're live, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dr. Pranos podcast. My name is Dr. Lim, and together with me is my co-host, Andrew Mastrin-Donas. And uh, once again, we have a very special guest. I think I would consider him to be part of the pinnacle of the HK industry in the US. Andrew, why don't you introduce uh, our guest? Yeah, we're really excited to introduce Tom Grape, the founder and CEO of Benchmark Senior Living, which is based in Massachusetts in the US. And I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, you have about 60 uh, senior living facilities in the U.S. and over 6,000 employees, I think. Is that about right? 65 communities, but about 6,000 employees, correct. Great. Um, So as I said earlier, this is sort of a back and forth about your business and how you came to where you are today. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what inspired you to get this started over 25 years ago. Well, I was actually in senior living for 10 years before starting Benchmark. So uh, I was around in the very, uh, I was one of the the ground floor of assisted living when assisted living was in its very, very early days in the U.S. And uh, uh, thought it was just uh, an idea that uh, I saw the potential and how exciting it was, uh, given what the alternatives were at the time, which in the U.S. were really, you had a choice of being in a congregate living building, which was our term at that time for independent living, or a nursing home. Right. And so there were just a few of the sort of more modern assisted living buildings, uh, just a handful of them at that time. <clears throat> and you could, to me, I saw them and I said, this idea is just going to take off. So I uh, uh, teamed together with some folks and we actually wrote the legislation that became the law in Massachusetts for assisted living and uh, built the first several uh, assisted living communities in Massachusetts. I was one of the founding members of the National Trade Association, later became its chair. I would founded the State Trade Association in Massachusetts. I really was on the ground floor of, a, of the assisted living movement in the U.S. And it's, uh, of course, now it's a big business. But uh, I just saw that idea and it was, uh, it was one to me that was a very exciting uh, potential and it's been a, been a great ride. So what was the trajectory from when you had your first one and then the next few and the 10 and 20? How did that go over the years? Well, um, at the time we built the first few, uh, uh, I was with a different, uh, in a different group. Uh, We built uh, 14 of them in uh, about a five-year period. Then uh, that group, uh, which was a subsidiary of a larger company, the larger company got sold. So that's when I then started Benchmark. Uh, that was in 1997, uh, so that's 25 years ago. Uh, so, uh, uh, so, so then we're now up to the 65 uh, at benchmark. So uh, we had a little had to, had to take a little sidestep and <laughs> in, yeah. uh, into 96 to start benchmark, but uh, it's all been good. Right. Um, just just a curious question to you, um, uh, Mr. Tom. Like, uh, what was your background before venturing into your first? Uh, senior living or aged care uh, industry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a lot of folks in our industry come from uh, either have had had close relationships with elderly relatives or something that 
uh, I didn't really have that story. I, my first job out of college was at Procter & Gamble marketing consumer products, Bounty and Pampers, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I then sort of shifted gears into real estate. The real estate company called me one day and said, do you want to move to Boston? We're starting a new subsidiary to develop retirement communities. I knew retirement communities were going to be a booming business over the long haul. And I also really wanted to move to Boston. I was in my mid-20s. And so I jumped at it. And that was 35 years ago. Um, I started, um, uh, so I started that subsidiary for them. Uh, and then uh, later joined this company that I described where we built the 14 communities. And again, until that was sold and then started Benchmark uh, in 97. So um, I did not have a background in healthcare or a background in elder care, but got sort of just serendipity that I, I was uh, introduced to it uh, as a career opportunity and got bit by the bug and I've loved it. And it's been a, it's been a great, uh, a right. great career uh, choice for me. Right. Assisted living is a fairly new term in this part of the world. Um, how would you describe assisting living, living compared to other types of, of, facilities for the elderly. Yeah. Um, it's described here frequently as being, you know, along the continuum of healthcare options. So starting, a, you know, there's a, a big boom happening now for what are called active adult communities, which are what we think of as sort of the typical golf course community, which is maybe right. a single story townhouse, but, and basically the absolute minimum of services like security and, uh, and, uh, and maintenance, period. Then the next level up might be independent living communities, which are typically more apartment buildings, and but a full-size apartment with a kitchen, and but some services, perhaps a meal per day, some housekeeping, some transportation, minimal activities, but people are still independent. And, but they're starting to slow down. They want to downsize from their house. The next step up in the continuum is assisted living, where people, the apartments tend to be smaller, they usually have a kitchenette, not a full kitchen, and the service level increases. So people are then starting to get three meals per day, uh, some care, typically it's 45 minutes or so per day, um, housekeeping, laundry, transportation, activities, and so on. And those uh, residents tend to need help with a few activities of daily living, uh, you know, bathing, dressing, grooming, uh, et cetera, perhaps, and usually some help with Medica- being reminded to take medications and, and sometimes a good bit more. The next level up from assisted living or, or, a, or a type of assisted living is specifically for folks with memory care, uh, early stage dementia. Um, the next level up from assisted living or memory care assisted living would then be skilled nursing uh, and so on. So that is sort of the continuum of care as we think about it here. So what, again, as I described earlier, assisted living really didn't exist. So your choice was to move from independent living to skilled nursing back 25, 30 years ago. And that was a huge, (laughs) a huge jump. There was this just gap. Uh, And so assisted living has sort of filled in that middle position and has been a great boon for many people. So where are you, where's Benchmark sort of on this, this scale between independent living and skilled nursing, are you more assisted living? Have you seen some movements as skilled nursing? Where are you sort of now or where have you been sort of yeah. transitioning to? We, well, some of our communities do have independent living units. Most of our communities are assisted living communities with memory care, a memory care wing. Uh, we do have 11 communities that are exclusively memory care. 
And then we have four communities that are the continuing care retirement communities, which means they have independent assisted memory care and even a small skilled nursing uh, component. But the bulk of what we do is assisted living with memory care assisted living. But even within that, that broad category of assisted living, some people uh, tend to only want to serve a, a, a less frail population and others, including us, are willing to serve folks with higher acuity. Um, and so even within the broad term of assisted living, there, there's a range, of course, of, of uh, frailty and acuity and willingness, what level of service people are willing to provide. And in fact, some states reg regulate assisted living with different tiers of licensure. So for example, New York state is a state that we happen to operate in uh, where you can get a basic tier of licensure or an enhanced level of licensure within the category of assisted living. A number of other states do that as well. So uh, there's assisted living, there's sort of different flavors of assisted, right. different levels of assisted living. Got it. Um, so what makes more sense from a business perspective, uh, I would see challenges in doing more sort of skilled nursing and working with clients who are more frail. Does that add different dimensions to the business? Is that, you know, as a business person, what makes more sense to kind of grow in based on the market needs, the regulations and all of that? Well, I guess one important distinction I would make between what we do in skilled nursing is that our businesses are all privately paid. So okay. they're, all paid, they're all paid by the resident or the family. So independent living, assisted living, and memory care assisted living are pretty much all privately paid. There are some small exceptions to that depending on each state and so on, but none of them are paid for by Medicare, which is the right. federal program. Skilled nursing is very different. Skilled nursing, as you know, can be largely paid for by Medicare, and if not, then by Medicaid. Right. That's a very different game. It's a that's a whole different business from where I said. I we don't do freestanding skilled nursing because of that. Government reimbursement is just a whole different business. So, um, so to the question of high acuity, I guess which is it's it's a business decision. I guess it's it's a good business if you know how to do it well. Right. Um, and, but there are some implications of it even beyond that, which is having a higher acuity population can be. A little bit of a of a deterrent to people to prospective residents when they come in to your sure. community. If you've got a frailer population, they may say, "Well, geez, I don't want to live here. I'm not ready for this." If they see people who are higher acuity and more frail, um, and so you have to know how to uh, run a community like that, where uh, and how you're marketing a community like that, so that you're. Um, uh, you don't turn off prospective residents and or you're marketing to the right group of prospective residents. Um, and on the other hand, serving a higher acuity group is uh, can be um, a good business proposition because nobody wants to go to a nursing home. And uh, these are much more residential communities in style and service delivery and the likes so are far preferred, obviously, for those who can afford it, which is you know, a meaningful chunk, but not everybody, a meaningful group of the population, but not everybody. So there is, you're right, there's an art to it as well as a, right. a science to it. So do you see people transitioning from one of your more independent living facilities to assisted living to skilled nursing? Is, is that a big part of your business? I'm just kind of wondering, do people do assisted living for five or 10 years and then move to something else? Maybe they want to go back to a home or something. I don't know. I'm just curious how that works. Yeah. 
Well, again, I mentioned we do have four what are called continuing care retirement right. communities, which have all the levels on one campus. Sure. And that whole that's premised on the notion that uh, you move in when you're independent and you have the higher levels of care if you need them. Uh, and a number of folks do move to a higher level of care, not everybody. In our communities that have assisted living and memory care, uh, you know, some percentage of residents do move uh, from one to another. Sometimes couples move in or one might be in assisted living and the spouse might need memory care, for example. Um, we, uh, so we do see some movement through you know, to a higher level. Your time frame's um, interesting because our average length of stay in assisted living and memory care assisted living is really more like two years. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're turning, there's a fairly high level of turnover. Um, and uh, in our continuing care communities, the ones, the campuses with all the levels of care, the independent living residents are more like seven years. Uh, and then if they get started going through the continuum, again, the time frame shortened for those higher levels of care. The average age of our assisted living residents is 86. Wow. So it's, a, it, and it's an older population. And even in our independent living communities, the average age isn't a lot younger. Uh, they're just they're just healthier. So, so I'm curious, Doctor Lim, what what's our average stay and our average age? And we're more nursing homes, I would say, than assisted living, right? Yeah, I think I think in Malaysia, uh, the gap between um, it's pretty similar to what U.S. was a, a few decades ago, which is uh, transitioning directly from independent living to nursing homes. And um, yeah, I think we do the the age range is pretty similar there as well. And I noticed, uh, uh, Mr. Tom, that you mentioned a few times that you built these facilities. Do, do your does your company own these facilities and do you build them yourselves as well? We, um, we, we, uh, we do own them. Uh, we have capital partners uh, who invest with us, but we do own them. And of our portfolio of 65 communities, we've built about half and we've acquired about half. Um, so, uh, but we do build communities, yes. Well, I guess that, that's when your uh, previous real estate experience comes in handy as well. Yeah, well, that's right. right. I still like tinkering with the plans. I, I still like, uh, I enjoy the, the development process, yes. Right. So, so, what's, so what's sort of the average square footage of your facilities? I'm just curious. Well, the average square foot per unit is, you know, plus or minus 900 to 1,000 square feet per okay. unit gross. So, and our, our, our buildings range from a small of about 50 units for a freestanding memory care build, memory care only building to our largest campus is about 400 units. Mm -hmm. um, our typical building is in the 100 to 110 unit range. Right. Wow. And do you see, do you see that staying like that or do you foresee a, a change in the coming years for larger campuses? How, how do you see that going in the future? Um, my expectation is we're you know, hitting the baby boom generation right. uh, in the U.S. where they're, they're the adult children now, which means they're the buyers today for their parents. They're just about to start turning into the group that's going to start moving in as residents. Right. And as we all know, the baby boomers have sort of turned everything on their heads that they've touched. And uh, so my expectation is the baby boomers are going to want in their senior years all the full array of choices they've had throughout their lives. So they're going to want, whereas 10 years ago, let's say, uh, senior living in the U.S. was probably 80 uh, percent, three-story buildings and five-acre lots in the suburbs. 
Right. Um, the baby boomers are going to want high-rise urban. They're going to want mixed-use developments. They're going to want, uh, you know, multi-generational developments. They're going to want, you, know, you name it. They're going to want every possible, uh, you know, flavor they could possibly have. And again, all the same choices they've had throughout their life. They're going to want in senior living. So I think we're going to see a huge uh, array of different kinds of buildings being built, different services being offered than we've ever had before, uh, different ways to pay for it. I think we're going to see a tremendous proliferation of new kinds of buildings and services and all kinds of things starting to be developed now. We started to see the early stages of that just in the last couple of years with some very high-end urban buildings coming on board with some couple of gay and lesbian communities coming on board with, uh, with uh, uh, mixed-use communities starting. So we started to see some early steps in that direction, but we're going to see more and more and more variety coming in terms of buildings and services and so on uh, in the coming 10 and 20 years. So, so would you describe your facilities now as mostly sort of suburban residential? Um, yes, I would. Yes. And, and do you foresee yourself moving in the urban direction or other types of facilities and other surroundings down the road. Do you see that happening? Uh, I do. Yes. Yeah. We, uh, we're, uh, again, I think to keep up to, to, to meet consumer expectations going forward, we're going to need to mix up our game. And I think we're, I think that's a really exciting opportunity personally for, right. for my competitors who view that as a threat. Um, good for them, for, <laughs> for, but, for, but for companies who view that as an opportunity and who embrace this new direction, I think it's going to be a, a really exciting period coming up. So uh, we view it as an opportunity and one we're uh, embracing and looking, trying to think about different ways to, uh, to approach these next uh, can, coming 10 and 20 right. years. Right. Right. Uh, maybe some questions about your operations, right? Um, what are some of the biggest challenges you are facing while operating such facilities in the U.S.? Well, um, you know, right now, there are probably two principal ones. We're still in COVID recovery mode. Um, so we still have some cases of COVID. They're, they're, pretty, they're pretty low, uh, but uh, we're not completely post-COVID, but it's de minimis compared to obviously where we were, you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, and also our industry took a, a good hit in occupancy levels during COVID, and we've not fully gotten back to pre-COVID occupancy levels um, as an industry. So we're, uh, we've made good progress, but we're not quite back to that yet. So we're still dealing with um, COVID. Again, nothing like the crisis period of 2020, but that's still with us. Uh, the big issue that we're facing is labor, uh, is the workers have vanished. Uh, so uh, labor is very hard to get. We've had to do several broad scale wage increases. Uh, we're utilizing outside uh, agency staffing uh, at a number of our communities, which is very expensive because we just can't fill positions. Uh, so uh, the labor market in the US, as you know, is very tight and uh, applicant uh, availability is very difficult. And we've worked very hard over the years. We have a very good reputation as being an employer of choice. We've won a number of awards for that. Uh, and yet we still have a very difficult time recruiting workers at all levels, but frontline in particular. So, uh, and with inflation being what it is um, at the moment, uh, you know, pay it keeps having to go up, but 
So labor is uh, is number one. Are, are people just leaving the industry? Are they going to competitors? What are they tending to do? They, they, they seem to have vanished, as I said, because every industry is, is having this battle. Yeah. Every, every restaurant you go to, every retail store you go to, every um, every factory, every everything. Yeah. Going to, you go into any restaurant or many restaurants in the U.S., and they'll say, please forgive us for slow service. We, we're short-staffed. Uh, or they close on, on days that they wouldn't have closed before because they can't get staff. So this is not unique to our industry. It is, it is across every industry in the U.S. The, the workforce has, I don't know where everybody's gone, but, but they, uh, it's, a, it's a problem not specific to benchmark or our industry. It is endemic uh, throughout the labor market in the U.S. at the moment. Well, you'll be happy to know that we have similar labor issues over here as well. So oh, it's just sorry, not the was, U.S. <laughs> I was going to see if you could send some folks over to help us out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably it's a worldwide issue. But like speaking of that, like what, what are your policies on uh, foreign workforce in, in your uh, in your work staff? Well, we have many, many uh, uh, immigrants in our uh, in our workforce. Uh, we have a very diverse workforce. Um in, in all respects, so uh, including from their country of origin. So um, we have our workforce consists of folks who speak many languages and come from many different countries. And uh, that's part of the richness of our, well, of our country, of course, but of our, of our workforce today. So we're, uh, we'd welcome anybody who wants to come on over. We'd welcome them. Maybe we should talk to later on about foreign labor from this part of the world, because as you probably know, there are a lot of Asians, Filipinos, Indonesians, even some Malaysians that come to the U.S. for nursing jobs, caregiver jobs, sure. a variety of medical jobs. We, yeah, we em- employ a number of them today. So we'd, we'd welcome more if they choose to come this way. Yeah. Right. And, and what sort of uh, qualifications do you require your staff to have uh to work in an assisted living facility. I think nursing homes, of course, you need more nurses and uh, medical staff, but what, what kind of like uh, qualifications do you need for your assisted living staff? Well, we employ 800 nurses, so we need nurses. Um, right. But our, our, our principal challenge for us is um, is our frontline caregivers. And for that, it's a, it's a certificate to be a CNA or an RCA or the terms used here. And those are certificates that one can easily get when they arrive here. We can help people get them. It's, you know, certain hours of training and so on. It's not, doesn't require a degree, requires a certificate that one can get when they arrive here and we can help facilitate that. Um, uh, nursing, as you know, requires degree, which is not what the uh, frontline caregivers requirements are. Um, so, uh, but, so that's something we can help facilitate and, and, uh, help people get. Yeah, right. I was just looking through your activities calendar and they're very comprehensive. I think that is probably the most comprehensive activities calendar I've seen uh, among different nursing homes, even comparing to Japan or different different parts of Asia as well. How do you manage to handle all these activities? It's like back to back to back, there are activities going on in your centers. Well, first of all, I take that as high praise. So thank you. Um, uh, you know, we want to give people uh, an array of choices for uh, what they want to do. We're trying to make sure that we're meeting people where they are. And, and uh, some folks will want to do more things than others. And some folks will want to do more 
active physical things and other folks who want to do more active uh, uh, cognitive things. And we want to have an array of choices for people to do. We, we do sort of keep track of who participates in what so we can sit down with their family, for example, and talk about who is participating and who's not and how we might be able to help meet their needs and so on. So um, we, uh, we have a couple of staff people on at each community or more who are our programming staff who put on those uh, activities and we rely on volunteers to help as well. Um, but uh, our, our company purpose statement is to transform lives through human connection. So our whole mission is about getting people to connect with one another, both residents, families, and our staff, our culture. So uh, programming is, a, is an essential element of, of facilitating that human connection that we think is uh, the central calling of our, of our company. Right, I, I'm just curious, getting back to sort of planning facilities, do you sort of create a yearly or a five-year plan about where you want to open new facilities? And then once you sort of have a plan, what are some of the key factors you look at in opening new facilities? Um, well, uh, we, we do certainly look at the markets we'd like to be in, uh, where there are desirable demographics and, uh, you know, hopefully a little bit less competition and the like. Um, I guess I'd, I'd say that's probably about where our planning start stops because uh, beyond that, it's very difficult to predict the timing of the development process or in the case of acquisitions, we don't know, of course, when an acquisition is going to become available or not. We've had development projects where we're trying to build from the ground up. Uh, obviously, some don't get through zoning approvals and we can't, and the project dies. We have others that take as long as you know five years or more to go through approvals. Um, so uh, the timetable for uh, developments is uh, or, or acquisitions is very unpredictable. But we certainly do pick the markets we'd like to be in and target those. Um, and we generally would like to have a you know at least a, a two or three developments going a year each year. Uh, but Sometimes they sort of get bunched up because of the timing of how the development approval process works. And sometimes we go through a period where there's uh, less openings just for the same reason. So the, the timing is unpredictable, but the markets were certainly very, very picky about. Um, you had a second part of your question, and I don't forget what it was. Yeah, I, I do too, I think. But I think you answered it generally. So when when COVID hit in like March 2020, did you have projects that were going to start or in, or in progress that you needed to slow down or how did that affect the development process? Um, we, uh, uh, we had one project that we were uh, getting ready to start. It, it slipped by a couple of months, uh, but still started uh, just a little bit later that summer. We're getting ready to open it actually in a couple of months now. Um, and uh, uh, otherwise, uh, it didn't affect other other development projects, which were going through approvals and so on. Um, so we, uh, yeah, so it affected, it slowed down one by a couple months. Right. So I, I noticed you're mostly in sort of the Northeast in New England. Yeah. Uh, is that for a particular reason? Have you thought about other sort of baby boomer markets like Florida or Arizona or other places? Yeah, we have. Um, and 
I've always described our geographic footprint as being Boston to Washington, so that northeast right. border of the country. We actually just broke ground on a project in the Washington, D.C. area um, just a few days ago, actually. Um, and uh, the reason I've, I've liked that market is it's about 25% of the U.S. population, so it's a big market. And the socioeconomic characteristics are very different in the Northeast and on the West Coast than any other part of the U.S. Right. It also has higher barriers to entry. Land is more difficult to get. Zoning is more difficult to get. Um, but there's more affluence and so on. So as soon as you go south of Washington, D.C. into the Carolinas or Georgia or Florida, zoning is very easy to get. Uh, the net incomes and household net worth is much very, very different. Right. Uh, same is true of the Midwest. So um, I like the geographic concentration of our communities. Uh, it's easier for us to shift staff around, to do collaborative marketing things. To It's an easier business to run than when you have to jump on an airplane to go, you know, go all over the place. We can drive to all of our communities within hours. Uh, so it's a much more manageable business. Um, and we're in a very big market with the best socioeconomic demographic characteristics in the country, and uh, it has served us well. So uh, we've been offered countless opportunities to go to Florida or the Midwest or China, Australia, you know, South America, you know, you name every place. We've turned them all down because we like the market that we're in and think it's been a good strategy that has served us well. Right. So even if you could go to, say, south of Washington, D.C., uh, you probably couldn't get the kind of room revenue you can get in the Northeast. And I guess even if you could build facilities cheaper, uh, maybe maybe that's not even possible. I don't know. But it sounds like you want to stay in a certain income demographic for your company. Yeah, Um you're right on all counts. We probably couldn't get the room revenue. We, we probably could build cheaper, uh, but we couldn't get the room revenue. Um, the quality of staff is different. Um, right. Somebody could build right next door to us, you know, tomorrow because the barriers to entry are, are easier. Um, it's just, a, it's, a, again, it's, it's a different business. Uh, and um, we're very comfortable with where we are. There's, there's a big market. We're in a big enough market. There's a lot of room to do things and, we got plenty to do where we are, so we're we're good. The only exception to it, if we bought a portfolio of I don't know 15 properties and a few of them happen to be outside our geographic footprint, you know, we might do something like that. But it wouldn't be, it would be as a as a tail onto a deal that we liked that was principally in in our region. It wouldn't be, you know, to go do deals outside our region. Right. So. Are, are your competitors, a lot of them, focused on the Northeast as well? Or how does the competition break down in terms of their geographic focus? Well, uh, in the New England states, we're the largest. We're, we're more than twice as big as the next company um, in terms of property count in New England. So we're the by far the market leader. Uh, you know, there are national companies that are, uh, you know, that are bigger than us nationally. But in our market area, we're, we're the, by far the largest in, in the markets we're in. Right, right, right. So with 65 facilities now, in, in, in five or 10 years, do you want 50% more, double, sort of where do you see the, the yeah, future? We've, we've, we've always talked about growth as being something we want to do to get better, not, 
not not bigger. We're, we're right. not trying to build an empire. We don't want to get to 200 communities or or anything like that. We we want to grow uh, only at the pace that allows us to invest more in our infrastructure and resources that allows us to improve our quality and get better. So we do want to grow, but I think at a at a moderate pace that, that is a controlled pace and that allows us to invest in our infrastructure and resources. So. Uh, you know, I, I could see us over time getting to 100 communities, you know, uh, but there's no rush to do that. I think we'll do that over several over the next several years. And when the timing is right to do deals and we'd like the deals, we'll, we'll do those. Right. Um, without getting into a lot of details about COVID, and I read some articles related to Benchmark, but maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of what you experienced or how you felt during that time period. And then what do you think your company learned and, and what the industry learned as a result of that? Um, well, I guess um, one thing I learned is uh, the crises can come out of anywhere at any time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and instead of the, the old crisis management playbook where you think about the traditional things that uh, – you know, you got to be prepared for anything, anytime. Uh, so that was one lesson that, that sure stuck with me. Um, we, uh, uh, you know, we learned a whole bunch of things about coping with a pandemic and about infection control and about, you know, all kinds of those things that I won't right. probably go over with, with your group. Um, I think we learned a couple of lessons that maybe uh, were most instructive. One was the importance of uh, transparent communication. Sure. I'll give you a couple of examples of what we did that really worked. Um, we uh, we literally sent out a letter uh, every day in each of our communities whenever there was a positive case diagnosed or if somebody passed away, uh, we would send a letter out to every family member in for that community telling them there's been a positive case diagnosed or sadly someone might have passed away. Um, so we have 60-some communities. So uh, we, were, we were sending out thousands of letters during the peak period um, a day, so in some, case, in some cases, explaining that there was a positive case diagnosed um, here, and it was the, the logistics of that. But, but people so appreciated that we were upfront, we were current, we were telling them what was going on. Um, we were in big points for that. At the same time, we were holding town hall meetings, we called them, where we would offer a Zoom call like this, right. where family members could sign in and we would be telling them very candidly, here's what's happening, here's what we're doing about it. They could ask questions. They felt, again, they appreciated the candor about it. At the same time, we were proactively calling the regulators at, at the states, telling them, here are our numbers, here's what's going on. They hadn't even asked for them, but we were sharing with them proactively, here's what's going on, because we were, we're the largest provider in Massachusetts and in Connecticut. Right. And we were calling those regulators, telling them, here's what's going. At the same time, we were also calling our congressional representatives, our members of Congress, telling them, here's what we're experiencing. Here, here's how you can help. Here's what's going on. One uh, uh, legislator was quoted in a, in a newspaper article as calling Benchmark the, um, the pinnacle of transparency or something like that. Right. So we got we got big points for the fact that we were just constantly communicating. We were when people weren't even asking us. We were telling them, here's what's going on. We were reaching out to people. Um, it, it cost us a lot of money because we had to hire extra staff to be doing this. 
but it was um, absolutely the right thing. And it, and it was, even when we had bad news, we were telling everybody at the moment, and I, I can't reinforce the importance of, um, and a lot of our competitors were not doing that. And it really distinguished uh, distinguished how we handled things versus others. We earned a lot of credibility and a lot of trust uh, by having done that. I, I'm um, really glad to hear you say all this because we went through something pretty similar in Malaysia as well. And definitely being honest with our clients and their family members has uh, served as well. Yeah. 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 Um, so I don't know. Those are, those are a couple of comments I guess I'd offer. Right. Did that make you think longer term about sort of the staffing and the type of people you have in place to deal with future situations, future crises? Well, it certainly made us uh, aware that we have to have a ramp up capability that God forbid, if there's another pandemic or large scale crisis that we have to be poised, which we were not in 2020 to ramp up our communications capability very quickly so that we could be prepared to do something like that again. We, we had to invent it at the time in 2020 because we were not prepared for a broad scale effort like that. Um, I think so we all we, did. Yeah, that's right. So, um, but the principle of transparent communication, we've, you know, we've practiced before, but we've sort of learned that, um, you know, in spades during that episode, but the, but the, how we ramp up the scale of it, we learned uh, in, during that time. Do you, th- do you think that's changed at all people's willingness to think about assisted living facilities or yeah. nursing homes? Well, nursing homes are, are different. Nursing right. homes got a lot of bad press during yeah. COVID in the U.S. Senior living, assisted living included, did not. Um, and in fact, we actually did a survey <clears throat> of our residents and, and family, really our family members during <coughs> the fall of 2020, and 87% uh, said their confidence in benchmark and what they thought of benchmark was better than it was pre-COVID. And this is right. after this is after the, the real crisis period. So kudos, that was that was great news. Um, and what we, we were all, the whole industry was wondering, well, geez, because we had closed our doors for months by you know, either by choice and in some cases by state requirement. So, and the industry's occupancy had dropped, as I said. So there was a real question, were people gonna, how were people gonna react when we reopened our doors? We saw uh, the last three quarters of 2021, we saw the highest level of leads, tours, and move-ins than we've seen any time in our history. So the question about, will people move back into assisted living, uh, in, in my mind was answered. And what we've learned is that uh, obviously people are asking questions now they didn't ever ask before. They're asking about infection control. Those words never were asked pre-COVID. Um, but we also found that there are just as many people who might've been concerned about infection control and living in a group setting um, uh, during COVID. There were just as many people or more who had been taking care of mom and dad or who had been living alone the issues of isolation and the issues of caregiver uh, burnout right. were uh, were even more of an issue. <laughs> so when the right. doors reopened, as long as we had we could satisfy them about infection control and the like, they were itching to move in <laughs> or move mom and dad in. So any concerns we had about uh, you know senior living being uh, uh, not okay were were put to bed. And uh, as long as again we had. We could satisfy people on the infection control issues 
uh, quite the opposite. People were more welcoming and more interested in senior living than they had been before. Right. Uh, nursing homes, different story. Mm-hmm. Switching, switching our focus a little bit from the past to maybe a little bit towards the future, like technology is uh, beginning to play such a big part in our lives. And uh, what are some of the innovations or technologies that Benchmark has implemented or is implementing or is planning to implement to kind of like enhance your service uh, offerings? Well, um, you know, there's there's so many people doing so many things on the technology front. And mm-hmm. um, so many are really very interesting. Uh, a lot of them, in my mind, are, uh, are still at the sort of gadget phase um, yeah. and are not yet... Uh, exactly what, uh, if, if they'd asked us, here's what, here's what we need. <laughs> uh, but there's some brilliant and fascinating people doing things. Uh, again, I start with our company purpose of, as I mentioned earlier, transforming lives through human connection. So my great wish would be for things that can help us with human connection. There are some things out there that, that, are, uh, that help with that. So there are, we're doing ba- very basic things, for example, putting um, TVs that we can communicate with in each of our communities so that we can send messages uh, about various things, uh, you know, very simple technology, but that's a starting point. Uh, we're looking at um, how we can communicate with all of our associates. Again, very simple, but not all associates want to download an app on their phone. They don't, sure. they don't like that idea. And so we're wrestling with very simple things like that. Uh, there's a lot of robot uh, efforts yeah. out there, and some are more further along than others, and they do some things more than others. There's a lot of fall detection, uh, uh, you know, and systems out there. Again, some are very rudimentary, and frankly, I'm. it's less helpful to me to know that somebody has fall. It's, when we get to the point of somebody predicting me when they're gonna fall, that's much more helpful to me. And sure. there are people working on that. Um, I think one of the needs that I'm particularly acutely interested in these days is we have our customer data is all in very fragmented places. And so it's very hard for me to say, here's the profile of all the residents in a given community um, or in our company wide, because we have to pull things from all different sources and there's no integrated way to do that. Nor can I tell you longitudinally. Um, I can't on electronic medical records, but I can't when you also wanna include financial information and you know all the different sources. So somebody to pull that together would be a great boon for us. Um, uh, you know, telemedicine, of course, is uh, advanced quickly through COVID. That that moved that accelerated the timetable of the, the adoption of that in senior living. Um, there's a lot of neat. I saw some pitches last week about some new, very innovative uh, cushioning technology that looks very cool. Some, um, uh, you know. I could go on. There's so many, so many people focusing on this now, including 10 years ago, you never would have heard Apple, Amazon, Google talking about aging. Now they've got major initiatives doing it. And it's obviously on everybody's uh, uh, dashboard or, or, or you know, plate of activities these days. So we're going to see so much activity in this space. It, it's interesting, though, with all this technology and the possibilities that when it comes to the problem of labor, you still have to go through sort of the traditional sources in order to find labor or go to agencies now. No one seems to be able to provide a pipeline for labor, well, given how there, hard it is right now. There, there are some people who are, who are working on that problem. There's some okay. people who are, um, 
who are knitting agencies together. There are people who are uh, who are creating sort of virtual agencies. Uh, so there are some people who are who are trying to tackle that problem. Um, and uh, I don't. It's a tough problem. So I'm not sure anybody's quite licked it. But there are some people who are clearly working hard to try and see if they can tackle that problem. That'd be helpful. Yeah, we're I, without getting into all the details. We're at, we've actually built some technology similar to that here, and we're launching it fairly soon. Maybe I'll, I'll send a demo to your folks to have a look yeah. at it. Please yeah. do. We're all I, ears. I, I certainly look forward to um, one day robot caregivers uh, get that can come in and kind of like replace the human. But I don't think that's that's going to be possible anytime soon, right? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that's all the questions I, I've been wanting to ask. Andrew, do you have anything else from your side? No, this has been great. It's been really interesting to sort of compare and contrast what we're doing here versus what you're doing in the U.S. And while our businesses are a little different than we tend to be more nursing homes uh, and, and home care, it's still a really interesting perspective, and, and we really appreciate that, Tom. My pleasure. I've enjoyed the conversation. Hope it was useful. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank nice you, Tom. With you. Yeah. Yeah. See you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is the Dr. Preneur's Podcast.